You're listening to the Race Wide Open Podcast. Welcome into the podcast. I'm your host, Rusty Gregory. Thank you so much for tuning in. And on today's episode, we'll be talking to, statistically speaking, one of the best professional drag racers in Australian history. His name is Aaron Tremaine, and he's a really interesting chat. He's a nine-time Australian Pro Stock champion. And we talk about a variety of subjects, from how he got started in motorsport, to the nuances of driving a Pro Stock car, to his thoughts on where the future of Australian Pro Stock lies. And his answers, I'm sure, are going to ruffle a few feathers for some of the traditionalists. But before we get into the chat, let's check out our race highlights. It has been a really busy month of racing across the country in a variety of different disciplines. So let's kick it off with some Speedway action. The final two nights of the Festival of Sprint Cars capped off with the Cricky Boys shootout and what was a fast Perth Motorplex track. Jock Goodyear again showed a clean pair of heels to the rest of the field uh, for the main feature on Saturday night with a beautifully managed feature to finish off the race week. Combined with his win on Wednesday night at the Midweek Mayhem uh, race at the Plex, Goodyear won his 14th and 15th feature races of the season. Now, that totals to a, a total prize money haul of over $200,000. He is absolutely having one of the best seasons of just about anyone we've seen for the last 30 years. And to think that this guy is only 22 years old is absolutely mind-blowing. He is someone who uh, plenty of people have asked us to try and get him on the podcast, and I think we're going to have to try and lock him down sooner rather than later. Jock Goodyear, he is an absolute superstar. Special mentions as well have to go out to Matt Eagle and Andrew Priolo for finishing on the podium in what was a really cool series of events over at the Motorplex. And again, uh, we just have to tip our hat to those guys over there at the Plex because they really are showing the way as to how to promote uh, speedway racing in this country. Looking at New South Wales Sprint Car Racing now, and with the absence of any racing in Sydney over the last 11 months, the New South Wales Sprint Car Association have spread their wings far and wide, uh, racing at a lot of different venues that we wouldn't usually see sprint cars at, places like Dubbo, Nowra, more recently Gilgandra, uh, which was won by Warren Ferguson from Ben Matchett and Brad Stacey. Uh, looking forward, they do have the 65th running of the New South Wales Sprint Car title on Saturday night in Dubbo, uh, and that's going to be a very, very cool race meeting with a pretty strong lineup for a very prestigious race. The sad state of affairs in Sydney uh, around Speedway has created somewhat of an unexpected upside with regional racing for sprint cars really experiencing a resurgence, um, even if it is unfortunately out of necessity. With more racing coming up over the next few months, including down in the ACT, it's got to be a good thing for the sport. And just on the topic of Sydney Speedway, I don't really want to get into the politics of what's happened uh, at the government-owned Sydney Speedway, but I think it's safe to say that everyone in the industry and everyone in the sport hopes that the public mudslinging that's gone on over the last couple of months is behind us. Uh, Whether you agree or disagree with the direction that the venue has taken is not the point. The point is now that there is a path for top flight speedway to return to Australia's biggest city and hopefully with the direction set now everybody can get behind it and make it a success. Speedway in Sydney and by default New South Wales will likely not get another chance after this. Uh, The past week marked four years since the final event at Parramatta City Raceway and that's the name I'm going to call it just for nostalgia's sake and after driving past the site of the old racetrack in recent weeks It's impossible to know, looking at it now, the rich history that that patch of dirt in the back streets of Clyde holds, uh, nor its role in creating the legend of so many racers and promoters, for that matter, who are now recognised in the Australian Speedway Hall of Fame. The point that I'm trying to make is that when government departments are involved, 
things can change very, very quickly. And although the new Speedway may not be exactly what many people were hoping for, the old saying of don't look a gift horse in the mouth has never rung more true. Parramatta City Raceway showed us that you don't know what you have until it's gone. Let's not make the same mistake with Eastern Creek. On to drag racing now, and it is a little over a week until the start of the NHRA season, with a lot of attention focused on two drivers in particular, Tony Stewart in Top Fuel and Austin Prock in Funny Car. Stewart will be making his debut in Gainesville, deputising for his wife, Leah Pruitt, who has stepped out of the seat for 2024 to focus on creating a family with Stewart. He is stepping into what is a top-caliber car that has won multiple events over the last few seasons. There is absolutely no reason that he will not be immediately successful, and he has the unique chance of potentially being the first racer to win championships in IndyCar, NASCAR, and the NHRA, a feat which, if he can pull it off, would be unlikely to be matched anytime soon, if ever. Uh, and Austin Proc, like Stewart, is deputising for Robert Hyde over in the John Force Racing Camp. Now, Hyde shocked the drag racing community when he announced at the start of this year that he was stepping out of the drive in 2024 due to medical reasons. We haven't gone any deeper than that, and there hasn't been any information volunteered out of the uh, John Force Racing Camp. But Proc has not missed a beat since he jumped into this car, which coincidentally is tuned by his dad and his brother. So it really is a family deal. He top qualified and won the Pro Superstar Shootout at Bradenton in Florida a couple of weeks ago and more than likely he is going to carry that momentum into Gainesville so he's going to be one to watch. Back in Australia now the NDRC Championship moves to the Perth Motorplex for the next round of the Top Fuel Top Door Slammer and Top Fuel Bike Championships uh, coming up this weekend and with only five Top Fuel cars in attendance Peter Gibberis is a notable omission. Nothing official has been released by the team in regards to the absence other than saying on social media that they will be back at the next round of the championship in April in Adelaide. Uh, they said that on their social media channel. So I don't know what's going on there, but I'm sure we will uh, hear about plenty more coming out of that team over the next couple of months. They do have a lot going on, of course, with their supercars commitments. So uh, fingers crossed we do see Peter Gibberis back in the seat of a top fuel dragster sooner rather than later. And that does wrap up our race highlights for this week. Next up is our chat with nine-time Australian Pro Stock racer Aaron Tremaine. He is an incredibly intelligent guy, and you'll probably hear that from when you start chatting to him. Uh, he's a guy who figured out how to go pro stock racing, took a childhood dream, and really turned it into a profession, building engines for numerous races across Australia in both pro stock and other categories as well. He's a great guy to chat to away from the racetrack, because if you've ever seen him at the track, he is incredibly intense and, quite honestly, intimidating at times so to get him away from the racetrack and have this kind of a chat was actually really eye-opening i hope you enjoy our chat with nine-time australian pro stock champion aaron tremaine uh aaron tremaine welcome to the podcast mate yeah thanks rusty mate good to be on here and uh look forward to having a chat Mate, it's going to be good. And you were actually at the top of my list when it came to guests that I wanted on the first couple of episodes because you got such an interesting story to tell. Obviously, a lot of fans probably have seen your expo exploits when it comes to racing on the racetrack, but they don't really know how you got to this point. Tell us, how did this whole thing start for you and your family? Oh, really, mate. Back in the day, I guess, um, same as every young fella, you sort of want to have a hot, hot street car and... Um... I guess uh, we started off racing, racing, uh, racing boats and all that, all that other stuff. And uh, I guess when we were young, we started skiing first, and that le led to ski racing. And then from there, it just you know went to hot street cars, and 
trying to have fast cars around around Bundy and, you know, who had the fastest car and, you know, it was pretty cool to have a 10-second car back then. So I pretty much bought like a uh, – I bought a H, HZ slash HQ um, style sold ute and uh, ended up spending a crazy amount of money on it. Dad gave me his credit card and I booked that right up to the hilt, which he wasn't real happy with. But <laughs> <laughs> it sort of got the car going good and then – I guess, you know, we got to the point with that car, Dad was like, you know, if you want to actually just keep racing, it's stupid to keep spending this amount of money on a car that's so heavy and it's still just a street car and then it becomes unstreetable and then you can't drive it on the road. So, you know, we just pretty much looked at buying uh, buying a race car again and that's when we sort of, his, his, actually, his old Alter popped up, um, a Jonesville car back in the day and um, we ended up buying that back. Um, which he actually he ended up racing it for quite a while before before I ever stepped into it and um yeah sort of that's how it all sort of began because when you stepped into the altered obviously you you're pretty young I mean we're similar sort of ages but you're pretty young in the scheme of things and you didn't race the altered for all that long before you jumped into a pro car no we sort of um I think the first event that I done in the altered was Dad's altered we were actually up at Benarabi. Um, and as you know, Benarabi is pretty, uh, pretty wild track, you know, especially with the seven second altered. So I remember the first pass I'd done, um, I hit the throttle and it took off and first second I come back to that and I went, holy shit, you know, that was fucking crazy. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe like from the, from the 10 second street car I had to like a seven second car, just the, like the amount of difference between the two, just with acceleration and then obviously trying to pull the thing up. At Benarabi, the things hopping and bouncing. My helmet hit hit the hit the roll cage and went over my face. I couldn't see where I was going, and I just remember thinking, "Holy shit, <laughs> this is a lot wilder than the old streeter." But yeah, no, I sort of, I guess we, I didn't really race the altered. I think we we bought an, uh, um, Dad bought another altered after that, um, which the, I, I drove, and then he 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 still drove the one he had, and then we ran, we was running comp competition eliminator for a while but um be able to automatic and then i think i'm not sure exactly how many seasons we done that we done with them cars um it's too long ago to tell you the truth but no i think we, like, like that was back when the tin tops and that were around and we won the tin tops i think we ran we ran pretty much right on the national record we ended up buying it buying an engine actually from um tail laster and dad had a old pre engine both both three fifty eight truck engines in his car, so both like nine hundred horsepower, you know, three fifty eight small blocks. So they were pretty, they were pretty cool, and you know, it was good fun. But I guess um, always sort of love pro stock. Uh, watching what you know, I remember just leaning over the leaning over the fence and and watching like uh, you know Pete and Rogan and you know like um, all them guys and T Tinny. I remember the first time I seen that. Um, Commodore Tinnies were just blown away back in the day, and uh, Dad sort of got along with all them blokes, you know, because he obviously used to race back in the day, and it just sort of went from there. That's when that the the Firebird come up for sale, and I think um, Dad might might have spoke to Bridgeway about it, and yeah, that's just we sort of jumped in head first, not really knowing what the hell we we're doing, and went from there. And, and it was interesting because. It Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you jump in first or did um, Tyrone jump in the car first? No, no. So I, I pretty much, I jumped in, I think. Tyrone, yeah, we, we had another car before Tyrone drove 
the the fiver. We we had um uh, I think that we bought our cavalier by then. And Tyron Tyron's first meeting was actually the meeting we crashed at that. So he he didn't he didn't drive the alters at all. He drove he went straight from his his twelve second Commodore straight into the pro stock car, which probably was a bit silly on our part. But yeah, um I think I might have ran four or five races before before Tig started driving. Okay. Okay, so that that kind of answers the question on the timeline side of things, but you talk about the jump going from a, a ten second streetcar to you know a seven second altered, and then into what was at the time a, a pro style car that was running probably seven one seven twos. Now they're running six eighties. How much yeah. of a difference is it jumping from you know not just a streetcar into an altered, but from a seven second altered, which is centre steer, no suspension. Um, you know, very sort of squirrely car to drive to a pro stock car, which really you've got to drive with the tip of one finger just to keep it in the center of the lane. Otherwise you, you end up in a whole world of trouble. How much of an adjustment was that for you to to jump into a pro car? Oh, well, sort of like back then, um, especially when we had our first Firebird, like the car setups weren't near what they are now, you know. So we used to run really, really short, aggressive fallings. And so they'd come out and hit the tire really hard and, throw the wheels in the air. But then the thing to down track was like an ice, like ice driving or an ice skating ring, you know what I mean? Sort of, I guess always used to say to anyone learning to drive, if you're starting to make hand movements down track, if your hand movements are getting bigger, you need to push a clutch in because it's going to end really bad, really fast. Um, but as far as, they're just completely different to drive, you know what I mean? Like an altered's very sort of stuck to the track, even though they wiggle around and they wander a little. They're very glued to the track, and you know you can feel that it's the the back tires are definitely a lot got a lot more grip than like being in a pro car. It's not flighty. The, the steering wheel doesn't get super light. Um, but and then yeah, obviously not having the you know like the altered, especially towards the end, was auto shift. So you pretty much just put it in stage, put your finger on the trans brake, let go of the trans brake, the whole thing flat. Not to say it still wasn't fast. It was fast. Um, but just a completely different sensation too. Like with an altered. Or even the drags are like whenever you you don't really expect it because you put your finger on the button, let go of the trans brake, and just smash in, you know, smash in the back of the seat. Whether with a pro stock car, you, you got your hand on the steering wheel, you got your hand on the shifter, and you're sort of leaning into the car. So you're more concentrating on the shift light and shifting the gears than you are about the speed of the car. So I guess in the same, the, the sensation is completely different between one and the other. You don't really feel the speed, I guess, in, in the pro car. I reckon the nearly the the altered and the drags sort of feels faster because you're sort of sitting there riding, whether in the in the in the in the pro car you're like you're shifting gears and there's a lot more going on. But yeah, they, they are completely different to drive, you know, obviously building brake pressure, rolling the car in. But it all comes down to car feel, you know, like we've always me and Tyrant have always had very good car feel. We brought up racing go-karts and we raced go-karts for many years and you know, done a lot of drifting and that sort of stuff when we were young, and so learnt car control from you know a lot, a lot, lot earlier than whenever I had a license. So when we sort of got into racing, it wasn't like we didn't know how to do burnouts or didn't know how to, you know, like be smooth in a car and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it came pretty natural to sort of both of us, I guess. So we've got a lot of listeners that, that listen to the podcast that aren't necessarily from a traditional drag racing background. We've got a lot of listeners from Speedway in particular, a lot from circuit racing as well. For people who don't know drag racing and they might just be casual fans of the sport, 
you look at pro stock from the outside and you think it's a very sort of clinical kind of category, but what a lot of people probably don't realize is just how busy you guys are in the seat. Talk us through, not necessarily from the burnout all the way through, but from as you're putting the car into stage, just how much you have to do as a driver, because it is really one of the busiest cockpits of all of motorsport, isn't it? Oh, it definitely. It's um, like, honestly, most people would think the, the first shift would probably be the hardest shift to get. It's actually normally the second one. Some guys do short stick, um, short stick low gear because it comes quite fast and the engine sort of goes up and you sort of hear it and then you just naturally hit the gear. So a common thing that people do when they're learning is they'll drop the clutch and then pull the gear pretty much at the same time. So, so you sort of got to tell yourself to wait for the shift light, you know, on the first gear. Um, you would think that you'd be on the limiter, but it's actually the opposite way around. Most common to short shift first gear than any other gear. And then generally they'll go, oh, shit, short shift and then limiter, limiter, because they know they the first gear. So it is quite busy, you know, like depending on the ratio and like you sort of have in the car, first gear is anywhere from, you know, like point. 0.8 of a second to one second, say. Um, and then obviously you're in top gear before 4.5 if you're making a decent run. So it's, it is quite busy, but it is, it's more of a, a natural feel, I guess, um, than, than anything else. And it's a rhythm. Um, so once you get used to driving a car, um, I've had probably I don't know, over my career at least 10 times where the shift light hasn't worked or the bulbs blown up and whatever. And, I will say I, I didn't have a shift like that run, you know, and, and I still make a good run and honestly we'll come back and I'll be within 100 RPM of a shift anyway because I can just feel the engine, I can hear the engine and I know when to hit the gear. It's just a natural rhythm that after a lot of runs you just do naturally and, yeah, it's it's crazy. You think oh, you definitely need a shift light to shift the car, but you actually don't when you have natural rhythm. But, they, but yeah, it, I guess to learn that it takes a lot of runs too, you know. There's no substitute for experience. And, and you know, for our listeners that don't know, you guys leave off the clutch as well. It's not a matter of just stabbing the throttle. You've got to ju- leave off the clutch. Your reaction times need to be on point. You've got, you know, you're holding the, the line lock as well to hold the car in stage. Uh, you've got to manually shift. And then you get to the other end, you've got to throw the chutes. There's a lot going on in these cars. But the thing that I want to ask you is, is you've been around this for so long now. You've been doing this for, for not far short of 20-odd years. Did you ever think, at the end of the day, you'd have nine championships under your belt. Did you think that you'd have built engines for more, well more than that? Um, you know, between you and your brother, you've got 10 championships. That's an incredible record. Oh, without a doubt. No, no, no way in the world we thought that would have been possible coming into this class. When we first ste- stepped into it, as I said, I'd never even seen a clutch or anything like that in a pro stock car before or, or knew what falling settings were or anything like that. Um, so... I guess someone coming in the class, you just got to sort of not be not be afraid of what you don't know. And just, just get the right advice and you know team up with the right people to make that to make that a lot easier for for anyone. But but yeah, to to be where we are, um, obviously I haven't raced much in the past couple of years. Sort of took a step back a little bit, but to have nine championships for myself and one for Tyron, and Tyron's obviously finished second, I think maybe eight times. So. You know, he's he's always sort of been right there, but he's just a bad luck kind of guy. He always seems to fall the wrong way for him. Um, but you know, having him win the other year was awesome, uh, and sort of just I guess completed what we wanted to do in the class. You know, which is sort of also why we stepped back a little bit and haven't been running all the events, um, especially last the last year. You know, we only sort of ran 
I think we haven't raced at all this year since we were nationals. Um, so we just sort of, because we've done what we wanted to do in the class, not to say that we've, we've given up or anything like that, but we're just, you know, there's nothing more for us to, to, to prove in this class. You know, we're definitely, we're definitely very satisfied for, with what we've done, you know, breaking records and all that. And obviously having customers and that um, come out and run super fast and um, being able to build the, you know, build a couple of Dodge engines and, um, you know, for, for a couple of guys and obviously doing Scotty's stuff on the Ford stuff was extremely fun. So Neil got the fastest Ford um, in Australia as well, which is really cool. And I think actually mile per hour or ETY, ETY is I actually think it's the fastest Ford in the world, Ford or car. So that's pretty cool uh, to be able to build and develop that engine. Uh, you know, obviously that's, that's probably what I like about the class more than anything um, is, is just the, guess the engine side of it and, and how much how much work goes into making a car fast and you know competitive in this class is, is is a lot you know what i mean without someone just handing it to you if you've got to learn it yourself like i have um and obviously a few people help me along the way don't get me wrong um but you know a lot of it's just r d and trial and error and the rest of it and you got to put in the hard yards to do that stuff and um you know de definitely i'm very appreciative to have that opportunity in my career to do it there's a lot of guys who have come into pro stock over the years and they've gone that route going to the USA, you know, going to the reputable engine builders. We saw a rash of it in the sort of mid 2010, somewhere around there of, of just a stack of American engine builders come in and, and flood the class. But at what point did you realize that you were going to have to do this yourself if you wanted to be successful and, and stay ahead of the competition? Well, I guess, we, oh, I don't, I wouldn't even know how long ago it was. Probably fifteen years ago, roughly. Um, at the time we were sort of we we're doing our our own car stuff. Um, and we were using a a, a U.S. engine builder at the time, um, Steve Smith. And the first engine he gave us was fantastic. You know what I mean? It ran good. I think we broke, we shattered the mile an hour record by like three mile an hour with it. And, you know, it was extremely fast. Time won the nationals and the next couple of races and all that. And it took everyone a long time to sort of catch us on that. But then, you know, I think another 12 months down the track, everyone sort of caught and then we hadn't stopped doing any R&D with them. They just they just sort of ran out of, I guess, whether they ran out of the ideas or interest in trying to make us go for, further forward. They kept trying to sell us engines and we kept trying to, well, Dad, Dad bought a few other engines and they were just, they were honestly slower and didn't run as good as the first one we got. And that's when I sort of actually met, um, Jamie Noonan from uh, Noonan Race Engineering and we sort of teamed up and we're like you know let's do our own cylinder head and he's like man these guys aren't that smart um, we can definitely you know improve on what you have you know what I mean so we went from you know doing buying engines I guess to um, started doing our own R&D on the engines that we had started making small improvements and then obviously we came up and designed our own cylinder head and um, started sort of making pretty pretty big strides from there on out. And then I obviously, I worked out of Noonan's for, uh, I think probably, I don't even know how long, four or five years, something like that anyway. Um, and then had a, had my own dyno there and um, had my own build room and used to do all like, our own stuff and obviously working hand-in-hand -hand with their machine and all that um, until we went out on our own, um, you know, a couple, as I said, about five years, pro probably... I think we went out, went out, went out on our own. What would that be like six? Yeah, probably about 
10 years, eight, nine years ago now. Um, and ever since then, sort of just really made a stride in, in moving forward with um, with the engines and just, yeah, our, our R&D. Just keeping every, as much as we can in-house um, really helps. ProStock's one of those things, you know, you think that it's right at the bleeding edge and that you're never going to get any more horsepower out of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, everyone takes a big leap forward. Uh, we saw everybody take a little bit of a step back with the unleaded fuel uh, that was mandated a couple of years ago, but we've caught that up now and a little bit more. What do you think the future of ProStock is? Because, and, and this is a big question because obviously at the moment, still running with carburetors on the top of the engine, um, something that we haven't seen on production cars for a long time. How do we keep ProStock relevant to, I guess, the new fans that might be coming in and thinking, you know, I wouldn't mind getting involved with this? Well, honestly, you know, AFI is, it's just the way of the future and it's inevitable. It's really, it, it, it has to happen at some stage, you know what I mean? Whether they mandate it or I believe they just make, should make it um, optional. Um, there's no... I've dyno tested with it, probably one of the only guys in Australia who have. Um, and to tell you the truth, we lost quite a lot of power by the switching straight from Carver's DFI. You know, so if someone said to me, put away, you know, here's EFI, you know, you're allowed to run it, you definitely wouldn't see it on my car <laughs> straight away. I see that. There's a fair bit of R&D there to do to, uh, to try and close that gap. And even the guys in America, this they still don't make the same amount of power as they had when they, when they ran Carver's, you know what I mean? So I think... But you you can't you can't just rule rule it out like all young people they don't they don't want they don't want carburetors they don't they don't know what emulsion jets are and you know trying to change air bleeds to tilt fuel curves and all the rest of it they just want to get on their computer and page up page down and and go from there and it's the same thing as with the is with the uh you know we need to keep the sport relevant we've got to try and move forward with with the times like the same as what at the moment we're not allowed to run uh, as you were pointing out the other day. We're not allowed, still not allowed to run LS engines. So, and there's no real reason why we shouldn't be allowed to run an LS engine. An LS engine is definitely going to need a lot of R&D to match the current engines we run, whether it be the Chevy, the Ford, or the, or the Hemi. You know what I mean? Someone, if someone wants to go down that road, they, they're going to have to tip a lot of coin into um to get that engine to to be competitive. But hey, it's it should it should be it should it should be allowed. You know what? A lot of a lot of people out there probably want to see what the fastest LS engine could could run. You know, could it run a six second fast? You'd be pretty cool to have the fastest NALS door car in the world, mm. um, and have it in Australia because then we'd have the Chevy, the Ford, um, and the LS. You know, so I really think that the the two main things that we probably need to do going forward is definitely allowing EFI. And looking into the LS side of things, making that um, engine be allowed into our class is going to be a huge benefit because obviously we're a, we're a race race engineering shop, and eighty percent of the engines we build are LSs. Yeah. So if you want young people in the class, that's what's going to take to do it. Yeah, and it's not exactly going to be a, an easy road, as you pointed out. It's going to take a lot of R and D to do it. If that happened, do you think there'd be much pushback from from the older guard in ProStock? Because as we know, ProStock is um, an older gentleman's game in terms of uh, the guys that are involved for the most part, yourself not included. Um, do you think there'd be a lot of pushback? Oh, we're, we're both getting old, mate. But do you think do you think there'd be much pushback from from the guys who have been doing it for thirty years with the carburetors, with the small blocks? You know, 
it's one of those things. It's a big change. It it is a big change. But look, I, the worst thing about anything like any any major class changes, it's not. It, it it's they they they're scared about what they don't know. You know, and that, and that's the issue. It's not. It's not whether you can make it fast or whatever. They're worried that if they allow it, I, me or someone else is going to come out and just, you know, throw a ridiculous number out there. But that's just, I think, and then they're worried about trying to police that and then who's going to police that, who's smart enough to police that, you know. But literally NHRA done it and mm. you have a carbon copy of a rule book like, you know, like Holly, Holly, I've spoken to the guys at Holly, they'll make you an ECU that's locked out, traction control and all the rest of it, the same as they do for NHRA. And they'll make it at a crazy cheap, you know, at a majorly cost-effective rate to do it. So to say that, um, like, they're scared of it, I don't know why, because it's already been done, I guess, you know. Um, a lot of, there was a lot of criticism to start with, with NHRA when they done it, but that's just more how they done it. They said, you know, this is what you have to do. You have to run this throttle body, has to be a front mount, um, you know, got to get rid of the hood scoops and all that shit. And that just, re- and they had a very short timeline to do it too. So that 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 was a major curveball for them, you know. But I'm not saying that. I, I think you should still be able to run a hood scoop or if you want to go and buy a brand new NHRA style car with, with no hood scoop and run, and run a front mount throttle body, well, shit. You know, if you want to build an engine, try and make power like that. Well, why not? Why not be allowed? Um, I, they're just scared of what they don't know. You know, um, and I think you'll definitely probably see LS engines in a lot more before, a lot further before uh, EFI will come in this class. One of the things that NHRA introduced over the last couple of years as well, and and I'm sort of going off my script that I've got here, the list of questions. But one of the things they introduced was being able to run any engine combination in any body. And, and that kind of opened things up a little bit from the engine side of things because you could theoretically, instead of seeing 15 Camaros and one Mustang, it might actually split it up a little bit over in, in the States. Is that something that you would, would like to see here? I'm not too fussed on that either way. Um, I liked the, the traditional Ford and a Ford, Chevy and a Chevy, Mopar and Mopar because it's not like you can't run good with any of them. In America, if you don't run a Chevy, you're pretty much nowhere, you know. Like yeah. the Mopar guys, as soon as they turn the RPM down, you know, from to ten five, it sort of wrecked. It wrecked the advantage they had by, you know, because their engine configuration. I don't think that near as much money was obviously put into that as as the um, Chevy stuff was at the time. Yeah, they tried running the Ford for a little bit, but it was sort of nowhere as well. So I guess from their perspective, the only engine that was competitive was a Chevy. So the only way to get other other cars into the class was to make that rule come in, whether with Australia, well, a Mopar, a Mopar makes good power, a Ford makes good power, and so does a Chevy. So, you know, why not just stick to the engine with the car and the car with the engine? Absolutely. Well, one question that I've got, we'll get away from the technical side of it now, and I'll, I'll get more into, mm-hmm. I guess, the, the, the deep questions that we've got. You've had a lot of competitors over the years, a lot of guys that you've raced against, and there's always some feeling with with some of them in particular. Who would you say is your favourite person to race and who would you say is your toughest competitor to race? Like previously or currently? Previously. Previously. 
probably one of the best races because they they had that always had a very fast car. It was obviously Lee Backdash, you know. You knew you knew if you ran him, uh, he's very focused, um, shifts shift shifted the car very well, so his car was fast. Most of the time I always had an advantage on him on the start line, so that's sort of always where I try and um stitch him up. But it was always good, good value, good for the class. Love him or hate him, he was good for the bracket. Um and you know, because he was a character and I think that's what this class needs. You know, it needs more of a of a bit of bit of competition and a bit of rivalry and all that sort of stuff to to, to be appealing to the fans and um to make the class come alive, you know. And, and what about the I was going to say, what about now? Because you've got a little bit of a rivalry going with a few guys. I'm not going to jump to any conclusions, but <laughs> um, what about now? Well, obviously, most of the time the rivalry is always with the fastest cars, you know. So the two the two other fastest cars are obviously Chris and Chris and Rob and Rob. Um, haven't really had much rivalry with Rob yet. Um, only raced him a couple of times, um, but his car's really fast. He's doing a good job of driving. And um, Chris and Chris is just a wild cannon, you know what I mean? Sometimes he's rolling beams, putting lights out, double stage, you know, the next run he's setting records and making unreal runs and 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 nailing the tree. So you just you don't know what you're gonna get with him. You know, he's not a not an easy guy to race because you, you don't know what you're gonna get. He's either gonna be fifteen on the tree and go and run low ET at the meeting, or he's gonna be friggin' rolling the car through the beams. Like so it's it's hard to race people like that who are inconsistent um, because then you don't know sort of how hard you've got to push. Do I, should I push the tree? Because then if you push a tree and they're dead late and you red light, well, you just throw the race away. So, yeah, I guess um, them two guys at the moment are definitely probably the would be the hardest uh, two guys to race. Um, obviously, some other customers out there that we've got. Scotty P is always hard to race because he's good on the tree. Uh, and he shifts well. He, he has been driving really good lately. Um, there are a few guys. You know, John's quite a good driver. Uh, obviously, my brother's a really good driver. But I don't care too much about racing car. And like whether we, whether I win or he wins, is sort of it's a win-win for me. Um, you know. But yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of fast cars out there, and a lot of upcoming guys. You know, Omar. And like there, there's probably at the moment, if everyone makes a decent run, there's probably at least eight cars. I reckon that could. That could take it from you if you don't if you if you're not in your. When you go up there, okay, and, you know, when you go up there and you're racing against different guys every time. Obviously, it's such a big class now. Um, you do see a lot of different guys. Do you approach each driver differently? Do you try and throw them off their game a little bit? Is there anything you can do as a driver to to I guess you know lock in any advantage that you might have? Oh look, so, so, some people, a lot of people have different uh, things they like doing. You know. Some people like staging first. Some people like staging second. And it's generally because some most people are either better when they either stage first or second. You know what I mean? So, and then if you watch a driver long enough, you you know when you run them, they'll always try and hold you out. You know because they want to be last going in. So you'll know that look, he always wants to be in last. So you can always try and rush him, or literally just make him wait. Or you know what I mean? There's many things you can do to play little tricks on people, you know what I mean? Um, and look, we've we've all done it. I've done it, you know. And sometimes it's a it's a bit of payback, but end of the day, it is a it is a competitive class, and you, you're trying to get any advantage you can. But long as long as you keep it fair, 
You know what I mean? I'm a big person with fair racing. I don't like getting beaten or beating someone by playing stupid games, you know, and, and but, you know, just, just doing stuff that's not good sportsmanship. You know, you can't, if you win a race that isn't good sportsmanship, I don't honestly don't think you deserve to win it. You know, if, if you, if you, you go out there and you put the thing in, you hit the tree and you make a good run, you look over in high gear and you're in front, well, you done a good job. You got to sort of be a dick to get it there. Well, that's not that's not how I play. Karma goes around, you reckon? It does, man. It does. So looking away from the racetrack now, obviously, you know, over the last two or three years, you know, your life away from the racetrack has changed pretty significantly. You got married. You you're now a father as well. I guess the question is, what does the future hold? Aaron Tremaine. I mean, you're already statistically speaking one of the most successful races we've ever had in this country and probably one of the most successful in terms of wins anywhere in the world, I would argue. So what does the future hold for you now? Um, well, honestly, as I said, since this year especially, just having Bob, um, just really been enjoying that, you know. Having a little girl sort of changed my life definitely a lot with um, trying to get home a lot earlier and not spending so much time at work and I have pulled back on that quite a lot this year. Um so she's seven months pretty much very soon and yeah. Um obviously getting home to see the family is pretty much my main priority at the moment. And um as far as racing, we're definitely we're definitely gonna keep racing for a little bit. Uh we we definitely will not be running any championship series at the moment or in the foreseeable future. One because of money, um two just because of time. Uh, dad's pretty dad still works full time you know Tyron's still flat out with work I'm always very time poor so trying to run especially this year with the way the calendar was laid out it sort of made it real hard for us to try and run all the races I guess Um, so if they can put together a better calendar maybe we could run a season I, I don't know just sort of depends where finances and all that are as well you know honestly I'd like to do more R&D than sort of worry about just trying to race, um, if anything, because we haven't really done any R&D on our own engines for quite a few many, like quite a few years. Like, I did, you know, I'd hate to think last time that we'd done some serious R&D on the engine. So we've sort of been making the same sort of power for the last, you know, probably since we went down let it. Um, had to change some stuff, as you said, for that to to make the engines work and not, not shit themselves. Um, but yeah, it'd be good to do some more R and D. Uh, we definitely, definitely want to try and run two hundred before we sort of hang the boots up. Uh, that's definitely on the checklist. Uh, so probably need to make a little bit more power for that to happen. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean. So probably just put more focus on our little, little bit more R and D in the background if we can afford it. And um, and yeah, try and run the next few races towards the end of season, and hopefully one of us will get a couple, maybe a win or two. And yeah, just have fun, fun time with family, mate, is sort of my my key thing at the moment. You know, we've got a caravan, we sort of get out and go caravan with my brother and mum and dad, my mates and stuff. So yeah, just sitting back beside a pool, drinking beers, good fun have, too. Have fun, go racing, and if you can, bring home a couple of trophies. Yeah, if you can. If you can, mate. Thank you so much for the chat today. It's been awesome, and it's great to talk to you away from the racetrack where you're usually pretty wound up, you're usually pretty stressed out, but talking to you in this <laughs> setting, I think people will probably see a different side to Aaron Tremaine. Well, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty serious person, so. <laughs> but, you know, I, 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 I do 
anything I do, I sort of take pretty um, pretty competitively and uh, I like trying to always win and uh, do the best we can do on the day. Well, I think you got to see a very different side to Aaron Tremaine in that chat. Uh, as I said, he is a very deep thinker, a very intelligent guy, and one hell of a competitive racer. And uh, trying to chat to him away from the racetrack is a great way to do it. If you haven't already, please make sure you do jump on the Race Wide Open social page, particularly on Facebook. Give us a follow as well as subscribe to the Race Wide Open podcast on whatever platform you are listening to us on. That's all we've got on today's show. I'm your host, Rusty Gregory. We'll see you next time on the Race Wide Open podcast.